Um, so I've realized that Vincent Price's voice is impossible, absolutely impossible to imitate because it is both completely nasally and coming from the bottom of the bottom of his throat. I have no idea how he pulls that voice out of his out of his Should body. we all should we all try it once to get it out of our systems? I was gonna say I I literally told uh Harry and Cody while watching the movie that like I actually Kind of think, I think I may agree with you a little bit, but I do think that Vincent Price has such an interesting voice that you can't help but do his bits while the movie's going on. Yeah. It's like, there'll be a scene you'll be like, "Mm, you shouldn't have done that, my dear. It's just, it's like not a good impression, but it's so fun to do. there's there he's never spoken an unquotable line is what i think you're saying literally like, the entire movie is is comprised of vincent price quotes yeah every single one <laughs> i don't envy cody the task of trying to find the final quote for this because oh, there are too many oh, bangers oh that one made itself very clear um Ooh. don't you don't you worry okay uh oh, yes. do we start with me we, we'll, we'll go jay chan um so what <laughs> yes. uh every man has his own god his own hell his own heaven what he's is not the one who says that right yes yes what he is. Is. because it's himself remember oh right. it is himself I mean, it's technically one. not it's not prospero but it is yes, but it is exactly. vincent price okay okay are we just doing random vincent price voices before we actually yeah. start the podcast yeah okay okay silence that that's all that's all you're doing that's the whole one Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. What? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, are these our introductions? <laughs> the devil, the Lord of Flies, the Prince of oh, Darkness. Come on. Satan. You won't let me save that for the end, huh? You really Also he said he said the fallen angel, not the Prince of Darkness, but uh that was my first take and I'm sticking with it. Satan. Uh did we agree <laughs> that I'm doing my own God, my own heaven, my own hell for the yeah, intro? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll I'll do the other one. Um okay. so we were on uh Aaron, you gotta do yours. Uh I'm actually looking forward to yours because you have I... kind of a nasally or deeper voice than than most of us. I don't. If someone gives me something to say, maybe I'll. Maybe I'll. I, I don't. I will. Hey, hey, say say the phrase "official absentee bo- balloting material, first class mail." Official absentee balloting, first class mail. I forgot what you had said halfway through. I'm going to be honest. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't very good, and I feel like I had a good grasp on it while watching the movie because it's like it's right there. But just like okay, 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 it okay. up I'll, off the top of my I'll, head, I'll, tr- I'll turn I'll turn the piece of mail around. Read and follow the enclosed instruction sheet to help ensure that your vote will count. That's really long. That's so much. Oh my god! Okay, so Nick, baby Jesus, I'm Vincent Price with a throat problem. Oh come on! If you're just gonna make make fun of my okay, of course I'm gonna make fun of you. I can't do Vincent Price with a sore throat. Uh, 
this is falling apart. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am a true Christian believer, Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Modesty, but no humility. It's Cody Narvasatan, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Once again, I am your Lord of Flies, Harry Mackin. You can find me at Chitake Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron Grossman. I'm also my own God, my own heaven, and my own hell. And you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And we are pleased to be joined by the Prince of Darkness himself, Nick Ransbottom. Thank you for joining us for another horror-y episode. Nick? Hey, I'm Nick uh, Ransbottom. You can find me at the Ezio Kenway on Twitter. I almost forgot my Twitter handle halfway through that sentence. So starting strong he's he's taking your mind already i'm betrothed um, to say <laughs> uh the final initiation occurs tonight uh we are talking about the mask of the red death roger corman's 1964 psychological horror film based on among other things the uh short story by edgar Allan poe of the same name uh nick i or excuse me aaron I assume that some of this is overlapping with your quick summary, which I'm putting on the spot for right now. Indeed, I'm just going to repeat some of the information you just said. Yes, The, Ras- the Mask of the Red Death, 1964, directed by Roger Corman. Uh, it takes place in medieval Italy, where a plague uh, called the Red Death has spread. Um, Prince Prospero, who rules over the local area and is played very wonderfully by Vincent Price, is returning to his castle when he stops at a village where he finds uh, that an old woman has been afflicted with the disease. He orders the village burned to the ground immediately, uh, but first kidnaps a young woman named uh, Francesca, played by Jane Asher, along with her father and her lover. Uh, And once Prince Prospero returns to his castle, he invites local nobility to come be with him while the disease spreads outside. Uh, He hopes to evade the Red Death, but this attempt to prolong uh, his life, maybe indefinitely, ends up being his own downfall. Um, As Jason mentioned, it is based on the short story of the same name by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, It does also draw heavily from Poe's short story, Hop Frog, um, which is about a court jester uh, who is afflicted with dwarfism, um, who enacts vengeance on a king and his ministers who uh, wrong him in a few different ways. Um, That is also a kind of a side plot that happens in this film. Yeah, they kind of just like shove that short story into this movie along with the other one. Yeah, uh, Hop Frog in this movie is actually named Hop Toad for uh, some reason they changed that. Uh, that is played by Skip Martin. Um, lastly, also of note, uh, is Hazel Court as Juliana. Uh, she plays Prince Prospero's mistress, who makes a deal, uh, a sexy deal with the devil in order to try and also obtain eternal life. Thank you so what much got. for that. Wonderfully succinct summary. All, as all deals there. with the devil are sexy. That's kind of the whole, that's the whole point. That's why you do them. Uh, and as I understand, Nick is way too extra to have not told me that there is a certain Frenchman who had some influence in this story uh, and you wanted to pronounce his name. So I'll, I'll give you your 15 seconds of fame here, Nick. Uh, I don't know if that's how that conversation just went do down. It. Just, just do I, it. I, I can't speak French. Well, it's August, August Villiers de Lida. I, I don't know. I can't <laughs> do this. Oh my God, he's oh, <laughs> death rattle. <laughs> I'm melting. Why are you doing this to you me? Oh, that's going to be the fucking video in the tweet. Oh, my God. Oh my, I'm, I'm really it, glad that you agreed to come on this audio up. medium in order to um, pronounce difficult names for us. Do you have a few more you want to do <laughs> real quick? You can quick? the shit out of Jason yeah. right now. Easily, yeah, uh, no question. Oh my god. I hate this oh, podcast. Man. I'm done. Uh, I'm never doing this is my last episode. We, 
Well, uh, farewell then. It's good to have you, the Ezio Kenway on Twitter. Um, so I will lead as I usually don't uh, to give our quick runs of this movie. Um, most of us were kind enough to not rate it on Letterboxd. I will say Aaron was not. Uh, so I know generally his opinion of it in the most broadest of terms. But my opinion of this movie is that it is a f- fun, if sometimes boring, um, and often just like wandering. Uh, take on sort of the same thing that the seventh seal does, uh, which we talked about in a previous episode. I think that it is uh, at least an interesting marriage of the form, uh, which draws heavily from like very 1960s psychedelia uh, and like wild visuals and really popping use of color and very like cheesy set design um, and a very dark uh, sort of medieval influenced tale underneath about uh you know public health pandemics uh which i assume is part of the trilon's uh, incentive for for having shown this um overall i give it sort of a a, a, a I, I guess under duress a thumbs up i can't say that i would recommend everybody watch this it's not really super effective horror but it is very much uh like all the pieces sort of come together by the end i think for me it, it's not it's not super strong in any particular field but i liked how it looked i, I was able to um sort of like follow everything that happened on screen without feeling too completely blindsided, which I guess is a little bit against the point of psychedelic visuals. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, I felt, I felt okay about watching this. Uh, and I felt it was an interesting, slightly experimental um, movie that I don't think uh, Roger Corman went on to direct the remake of this, right. But he did produce it. Um, so obviously it's a thing that had legs enough for people to come back to in the future. I, I think that that must be a sign of, of some kind of success. Um, and I'll hand it off to Cody for his quick thoughts. Cool. Thanks, Jason. Um, outside of the great mouse detective, I have very little experience with Vincent Price. And that feels like kind of important context for this flavor of movie. Um, over the years, I more or less surmise that he had uh, a, a niche carved out for himself um, of I guess gothic horror maybe would be the term for that. Um, these, you know, these sort of stories that are cheesy, but also very earnest in their imagery and sets and line readings, although that may just be a Vincent Price specific thing. Um, but all of those things packaged into horrific, grim environments, very like, uh, uh, again, earnestly lit, you know, it, it kind of it embraces all all of the cheese, uh, if you will. Um, but I guess what I didn't expect was um, you know all all of these things coming together in a vessel that I didn't particularly feel frightened by as a viewer. And maybe that's because this movie, this again flavor of movie, feels like it wants to be watched. It wants to be experienced, knowing that the sets, costumes, choreography, all of the overacting that's taking place all of that needs to be seen and experienced and appreciated in a certain way that maybe differs from your run-of-the-mill like horror or slasher this isn't really a a slasher i don't think uh you know too much comparing that to our most recent episode uh, about friday the 13th but it feels to me as much of a of a mood piece as it is to a quote-unquote scary uh motion picture um all that is to say uh it pretty well met that you know my preconceptions about gothic horror um it kind of fit the bill for me um price is chewing on all of the fucking walls in this house he is eating up the scenery and then everybody else um all the non-vincent price characters felt pretty disposable um which i guess 
uh, was probably by design, right, as a function of both the narrative and a function of Prospero's sociopathic tendencies. Um, but whether or not the intent was to come off as that style of camp, uh, that you know, that type of campy or, or embodying that silliness. I did feel myself laughing a lot of otherwise maybe sincere or ironically stoic moments, but uh, this story wasn't necessarily nonsense. Um, I feel like I came away uh, from this movie with a pretty positive experience um, overall. So I I guess thumbs up, uh, cautious uh, thumbs up for me as well. Excellent. Um, You said some things there that I cannot wait to dig into, but for right now, let's go to Harry's thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I can sort of echo what you guys were saying and just with the um with the added comment that I really felt like this movie was deliberately doing some of the things that you are ascribing to um maybe accidental. I don't know. I just like Vincent Price is having so much fun in this movie. Like he's having the time of his life playing Prince Prospero and I think that his performance is so infectious and it inflects the entire movie with this like very arch um gothic camp cody like you mentioned and uh, you know to to speak to some of your points like there are there are issues with this movie right like i think that the fact that it is maybe the most obviously filmed in a california warehouse movie that i have ever seen in my life right down to like the reused props that occupy every room um to the fact that like fully half of the movie feels like it's characters slowly walking towards something sinister afraid of what they might find um i don't know i like vincent price's every line reading is iconic right like you could you could write down every single quote that he says he's having so much fun it was like very very fun to watch this movie with my friends um i don't think that it has uh extreme like legs in terms of a um thematic artistic statement at least that was not the primary enjoyment I took away from it. That being said, particularly watching it during the pandemic and particularly um, knowing that the Trilon is putting it on had like a very fun, very sort of um, like sardonically clever angle where like, these are essentially rich people attending a wedding. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, these are people who think that they're not going to be affected. And the, the equalizing metaphor death comes for us all that this movie is going for is very basic. Right. And it's very well, or it's better done by so many others, but it integrates really, really well with the sheer audacious, uh, arrogance of Vincent Price's character in a way that makes his comeuppance just really delicious to me. Um, and delicious in like the most realized sense where I had the exact reaction to the end of this movie that I think the movie makers wanted us to have. Um, that, that sort of combination of, of horror and um, like poetic irony and justice that uh, came together really well for me. And so like my experience watching this movie was very positive. And I think that if you're looking for something really arch and really um, campy and fun, uh, out of your sort of Halloween inflected movies, this is a really good place to find that, in my opinion. Uh, same to you, Harry. I've, I, I now have made a bolded note of something that I want to jump on in what you said. Uh, not to jump down your throat about it, but to concur and see what we can pull out of it. Um, Aaron, let me know what you thought of this movie. Yeah, um, I I guess I'll reference. I know that Jason, you had kind of mentioned my letterboxed rating earlier. I kind of I kind of very generally don't love talking about letterboxed ratings because it's like we're doing a podcast. We we want to dig into it a bit. I didn't say um, what you had. 
Well, I'll, hey, I'll hey, just say there's, a, there's a really cool way you could avoid that, Aaron. No, no, no. It's, it's if you wanted cool. to. You could just not do a rating until <laughs> after we may watch the uh, podcast the way that every single oh, no. one of us other does. I don't I don't have problems. I don't have I'll problems so with mad. doing that. No, no, no. I don't have problems with doing that. I will continue oh, to rate Because it's very discourteous, uh, especially it's when we talk about it. It's not discourteous. Okay, it's well, absolutely we've been not telling you that it's discourteous, so I guess you can just agree, but that's literally not true because that's what discourtesy is, is when somebody tells you that they would rather like you not to do something, and then you go ahead and keep doing it anyway. I think there is an element of discourtesy of that is uh, just outside of someone's own opinion on whether something is discourteous or not. Uh, well, if you value, if you care about the relationship that you have with another person and they tell you that they want you to stop doing something that's bothering them and you continue to do it, I would define that as discourteous. I think that if you're doing something that, that is kind of generally reasonable, uh, such as rating a thing on a uh, online social media website, I think that that is maybe a bit of a weird ask uh, specifically. But Cody, you're having... Aaron, thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to pop in and say this is shaving up to be our best episode of Try Love. Uh, Aaron, hit it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will say that. So I, ra- I rated the movie three and a half. Uh, I think kind of coming out of my watch, I was uh, pretty positive on it um, with maybe a few lingering thoughts about the film in relation to the short story. Uh, but I think kind of even sitting with it, I think I like it a bit more than I did right after uh, the watching. I think that um, my general thought in relation to the short story is that I think with a lot of uh, Poe adaptations, uh, specifically films, um, they're kind of hard to adapt because generally Poe does not write extremely long short stories. And The Mask of the Red Death itself is maybe two, three pages. It's pretty quick to get through. Um, And in translating that to film, there is a bunch of stuff that they have to add in, Uh, specifically the whole plot line of Prospero being a Satanist. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the original short story is gothic horror. Uh, that's kind of Poe's thing. But there are a lot of kind of more modern uh, kind of B-movie horror uh, aesthetics that are thrown in and kind of thematic points as well that I think don't really work. But those are also the things that I think I appreciated the most out of the movie. I think that a adaptation of the short story uh, that just kind of tries to do what the short story did would not work. But this very cheesy... Uh, Vincent Price-led vehicle that's just kind of throwing everything at the wall, I think was an incredibly enjoyable watch to the point where I actually think back on it very fondly. Um, so I actually really like this movie. I think I, I like it even more than I did after I watched it the other day. Okay. Uh, Nick, I know that you were texting me on and off throughout your watching of this movie, which was concurrent with mine. And I think I probably have an idea of where you're headed, but let me know what did you think of the mask of the red death? I uh, I did not, <clears throat> did not care for this movie uh, in, in really the slightest, uh, which is a shame because I was very excited before starting it. Uh, Vincent Price as a Satanist, technicolor, wacky, trippy imagery like that should be right up my alley. Uh, it, it just, it felt really bloated there are too many different elements that I, I, I know for some of you, it came together at the end. For me, it didn't. I found it confusing narratively because I'm not sure who the movie is supposed to be about. It, it In one sense, it's Prospero. In one sense, it's Francesca. But then you're also following 
their death or whatever, and also that boring. What, what's his name? Gino? Is that Francesca's lover? Hey, it's Gino. Gino. Um. So there's just, and then of course his mistress, Prospero's mistress. There's all these different plot lines. Oh, and Hop Toad, or uh, there's so much going on, and none of it meshes together well for me in a way that I can say, oh, well, I can understand why these are all running concurrently with each other. It really felt like, to touch upon what Aaron said, uh, the short story is just, it, it's short. Uh, and they needed to, I, I felt like they needed to add something. And the idea of making Prospero a Satanist I think is very interesting, and I think if they had kept it solely on that track, it would have been interesting. They deal a lot with, you know, good versus evil, God is dead. I kept having to bite my tongue from not, from not making a God's not dead jokes uh, in front of my husband, because that would have dominated the movie for us. Um, it the loss of innocence aspect, like, again, interesting, but doesn't fit with the rest of what I'm watching. Vincent Price is fun, campy. He's Vincent Price. Everyone else, I just, it feels like they're acting in a completely different film. And that ruins some of that campiness for me because it feels like Vincent Price is the only one in on the, in on the joke. Um, so I just, I really, really did not like this. Uh, I appreciated the imagery, uh, the direction. I mean, everything like that. But as a cohesive whole, I no, it was not for me. It's wild that everything okay. Nick is saying is making me like this movie more. I'm sorry, Nick. I understand your experience, well, <laughs> but especially when you said Vincent Price is the only one that's in on the joke, I was like, ding, ding, ding. That's, yeah. Uh, but, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I get how that can be fun with him being the only one in on the joke. That's worked in several movies. There's a lot of, there's quite a few actors in Starship Troopers who I, I do not think realize what the movie Starship Troopers was actually about and that it was a satire. Uh, you know, things like that can work. In this one example, it, it, it didn't for me. It felt like B actors doing a community production of Shakespeare and also Vincent Price is there. And also there's three other different plot lines. And also it's pretty much just the seventh seal. Uh, so... I, I I don't know. Yeah, no, you're what you're saying. I think I'm I think I'm kind of on on Harry's side of this argument. Not that you're what you're saying is wrong about the movie, Nick. And I would I generally like to take these like oh first point was brought in, but this is something that almost everybody said is that the way Cody put it was it wants to be watched uh, in a certain way. I, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but like it's a movie that that presents itself in a very, I mean, you said Nick sort of like community theater way. I get like high school. Uh, theater performance vibes. 
we're all like concurring that that's a thing. It's just whether or not you think that that is benefiting its presentation. I think, I think that it does. I think that that disconnect between the very Gothic dark sort of like a long classical, like literature style feel lines um, is then presented in like a bizarre technicolor plastic uh, like set, right? Sound set, which I think, I think worked in its favor to me. I got a whole lot of, um, I just watched this movie for the first time earlier this year, so I can't really like talk to its provenance or anything, but it gave me big seconds vibes uh, because of sort of like the, uh, the hedonism and the um, like, not really like the, the sense of place being sort of, you're not really like, we don't, we don't see, um, much transit between places. It's just scene, 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 set, set, set. Uh, I found that to be in the, in the favor of my viewing experience. I don't know that it's something that I love in general, but I think that if it didn't have that, if it played it straighter, I think I would have had a much worse time. I think I would have been bored out of my skull. I think I would have ended up disliking it. I would think I would have said that it was trying too hard. All those things that I like to level at movies like that. I think that it worked for me. I think that it is something that at least we're all noticing it right in different ways. Um, thoughts. Uh, first of all, that seconds comparison is the weirdest fucking wildest thing you've maybe ever said. I dig it. I, that's very, it's just wild to me. Um, but great. That's great. Um, I think that like the reason why what Nick said works for me so well is that it, uh, Vincent Price's performance as Prospero integrates so well with the idea of his character as the character portrays himself in the movie, right? Like Prospero himself thinks he's the only one who's in on the joke, right? Like he's a guy who thinks that his relationship with Satan uh, makes him the sort of Lord of truth, right? Like he says that Satan isn't the God of evil. He's the God of truth, right? Like he's the God of telling it like it is. And he thinks that the fact that he knows Satan so intimately makes him uh, better at seeing the truth of things than the other people and makes him able to sort of manipulate people and see the world as this sort of grand cosmic joke, right? Like morality is beneath him. Relationships are in the greatest sense beneath him. He finds pleasure in corrupting the innocent or as he sees it, pulling the wool from their eyes and allowing them to see the world as it is. And that arrogance is almost fourth wall breaking. He like to, to make another equally wild, ridiculous um, parallel reference. He reminded me of the main characters in funny games where like Vincent Price is all but breaking the fourth wall, right? Like he understands how pulpy and silly and arch all of this is and his character is going along with it because he's like the master of ceremonies and that's what makes his comeuppance when it it turns out that no dog like you're still a part of this story you're still as mortal as the rest of them satan isn't looking out for you that's not what satan does each man makes his own god his own devil it makes it work really well specifically with the way that he's portrayed in this right where like it's it's like now the the wool has to come away from his eyes i don't know why I keep saying that that's not the metaphor, but like, it's like, sure, d dude, like you, you thought you understood the truth, but now the truth is coming for you. Right. And like, I don't think that that works as well without this very pointed, very interesting, um, like B movie, uh, overacting performance. And I, that, that just felt, like I said, it's delicious to me in a way that I really enjoy, especially in comparison to the rest of the people who, as Nick said, are acting much more, um, typical to what we would expect from a movie like this, which only serves to make Vincent Price's performance even more ostentatious. 
I I can agree with some of what you said. I I certainly understand it. Um, the funny games comparison, wild. I get it, though, kind of. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put it on the same level. I it, here's the thing. I don't think Vincent Price's acting with his character and is intentional because Vincent Price is like this in every Vincent Price movie. He's always can't be and over the top. I, I, I don't think that was the intent of the movie was to say, okay, Vincent is going to be the only one acting this way because it, it lines with his character. I, I, I'll bounce that one right, right, right back. I think this movie wanted you to remember every second of it that that's Vincent Price on screen. Yep. Look yeah, at that. It's a strategic Price. deployment of Vincent Price. <laughs> we- <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> I, I, I know what you're saying, Nick, and I think I agree that it's like it's hard to watch sometimes just because it is so scene chewy. It's so cheesy. It's so straight up. No, see, that's new. that's the thing. I love camp. I love scene chewing. All of that, I, I adore it. My problem lies with the fact every other actor doesn't commit to it. And I understand why that works. I, I, I get it. And I I think there's very solid reasoning, uh, especially with Harry's take on everything. I'm not... I don't think they should be on the same level as Vincent Price. I think they're campy in a completely different way, which is why I compared them to, you know, community theater. And so it it, it feels like they're trying to be campy, but they're not. And if they had played it maybe a little more straight, it would have worked better for me, Vincent Price's campiness. Um, but it it just felt like two clashes of camp and i i don't know it it, it didn't work that's that's totally fair i think i think if we go much further we're we're getting on a sort of like oh it's the nick cage effect of like it's he's supposed to be that way he's supposed to be bad or whatever um so we'll we'll abandon that that train of thought for right now uh the harry you said something earlier about how the uh, use of death as the equalizing metaphor, obviously not new. Like I think in what I was reading about this movie, Roger Corman was even worried that this would veer too close to the 1957 seventh seal, which came of course just a few years before this, um, which like obviously a lot, a lot of shared themes, there, different ways of communicating a very similar idea. Um, and I believe when you were, when you were saying that, you were alluding to sort of the equalizing metaphor of across class lines, uh, how, you know, there are literally walls around Prospero's castle that he will not let people into. And if they ask to be let in, they will be shot to death with arrows. Um, but also like my overarching, I don't know if there's a take so much as just like what I was reading into it. Overarching takeaway is the, it's not just along class lines or, you know, um, geographic lines, but also along philosophical ones where, where we've kept talking about like right. how, like you said, the wool is being pulled from their eyes sort of thing. But there's like the whole movie is is structured around Prospero's understanding of, you know, in- intellectual worldly wisdom, uh, which is a true path to power. And, um, you know, once you've once you've sort of uh, once the scales have fallen from your eyes, so say the exact same thing you said in another way. 
um, then you have achieved something greater and you can be among gods sort of thing versus the faith, innocence, and that belief in hope that is embodied in Jesus. I'm forgetting her name, but the female lead who is taken from the village. Francesca. Francesca. Thank you. Um, and how that's just a path to like misery, death, uh, low circumstances, etc. And it is about how zealously both of them are are stuck to those beliefs, at least for the majority of the film, and how they neither of them finds what they're looking for in that. Like uh, Prospero does not find Satan at the end of the tunnel; he finds his own death. He finds the the mask of the red death. He finds. Um, you know, only ruin and ruination from what he believes is his salvation through Satan. And Francesca obviously never finds God. She like, I don't know if you could say that she was really holding out hope for a lot of this movie, but it's those clashings of ideologies. And I think for me, that answers a whole lot of the concerns that other people have brought up so far about how, excuse me, um, those loss of innocence themes might not fit totally. And it's because I think it's trying to say that none, neither of them matters. Neither of these ideologies matter in matter in the face of like human natural uh, and spiritual death. I don't know if this is too far a limb to go out on, but is that like, did that interplay of those two things mean anything to anybody else? Or is that just me like picking up on one or two lines and trying to extrapolate into a whole take about the movie? Uh, that's, that's interesting. I, um, the the thing that really works for me about uh, those characters and some of the stuff doesn't work for me. I think that in terms of plot confusion, um, I actually kind of agree with Nick where I Francesca, Francesca, excuse me, her interiority in this movie is so all over the map to me. And I had no idea how to pin it down where her final scene with uh, Vincent Price, Prince Prospero is weirdly tender where she's like sad to see him go. And I was like, wait, were they trying to make the case that she had Stockholm syndrome, like adopted a relationship with her torturer or like that she was beginning to see things from his perspective because I completely missed that. And I, I don't know if that's the point and it doesn't really work for me, but I will say Jason that um, I like the way that this movie is not making the case, even like the seventh seal does about like the centralization of human relationships or about like how religion can help us instead of just harming us because like instead this movie chooses to spend time with prospero at the end right and that's what nick was saying about he doesn't know who this movie's supposed to be about like crucially the red death spares francesca and gino so that they can be together we never return to them right instead we see the fallout of red death killing all of these people and they just return down to their destroyed world we don't follow them or get some sort of like return to happiness with them instead we just see the the red death leaving and i think that that represents and is corroborating evidence for your takeaway of this movie that like this movie is not saying that francesca and gino were right Right. In fact, the movie uses them to sort of make fun of them throughout the movie for their own naivete. It sort of follows Prospero's line of thinking up to a point where it's like, yeah, look at how silly these people are. They don't know they're living in this camp world until it turns out that 
uh, Vincent Price was living in this camp world too. And there's something kind of cool and subversive a little bit about that, right? That this movie is not interested in comforting us. It's not interested in telling us that we're Gino and Francesca and they're going to be all right. It's more interested in saying like, you're not going to be all right, period. <laughs> Which is kind of a fun uh, takeaway, right? And and sort of a fun spooky takeaway if we're talking about how horror movies are interested in scaring us. Yeah, I think I mean, there's an aspect of like community there too. We don't really see Francesca interacting with a whole lot of her village before it's obviously uh, taken and burned by Prospero. But there's that like semblance of um, like a really fucked up community within Prospero's castle where he uh, bids them act like animals that he sees them as. Right. And they do it willingly and happily. Right. And uh, and to him that that represents that he is not that right. That he exactly. stands above that. Literally. And like, obviously the whole, again, the whole equalization metaphor is like, he's not, he is just subject to the exact same things that everybody else was. Um, but it sort of, it, it just plays those two dichotomies, right? Like the, the plot of the film centers around and very much like, again, seventh seal where, uh, like the, the inciting incident, the reason that we're even watching this thing, the lens through which we're watching it is that death is at the doorstep waiting, but he's not brought into the story super often where we get caught up in the lives and, and tribulations of the people in it. And mask of the red death does that too, where there are high interpersonal stakes. You know, we need to make sure that, um, shit, Giles, what is his name? Uh, the, the boyfriend, Gino. <laughs> Gino, we need to make sure that he is released along with his father, uh, or her father rather. And, you know, just very interpersonal twining things that ultimately like even those, even what they do with their personal ideologies m ends up meaning nothing. Like the people who get caught up in their lives and the uh, ways that they express themselves around these people are ultimately moot because of the universal qualifier and flattener of death of, of a plague that's passing through. Um, I think that, it's it's the only thing, the only difference is how hard it hits when you thought you were better, right? Like, the reason why Vincent Price's fall is so precipitous is because he was so prideful. Whereas the other characters in this movie are spared from not death itself, but at least the sort of, like, terrifying uh, ideology-destroying total refutation yeah. of self, right? Like, like, Vincent Price is the only person who literally sees himself telling himself that he's not the man he thought he was, right? Like, mm -hmm. we're in the end, we're confronted by Vincent Price, who is the only actor who, like Nick said, stands above, and now that standing above-ness is turned against him in the end, right? That's why it's perfect that Vincent Price also pays, plays the Mask of the Red Death at the end, because it's like, listen, like, you thought you were Vincent Price, you thought you were above all this, well, we've got a Vincent Price too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to jump into something that Aaron said earlier, which is um, that Poe adaptations are usually hard, especially if it's like quicker hit short stories. What do you think was lost because I actually haven't read the mask of the red death uh, just because I'm an idiot. What do you think is lost between the literature here and what happens in the movie? Um, I think quite a bit, actually, maybe even kind of the, the whole point of the short story, I think kind of similarly with a uh, hop frog as well. Um, kind of tying back to something that Harry said, I think that this movie is kind of playing with theological themes that I don't, you know, it's, it, you can kind of argue about whether it delivers on that or not. Mm -hmm. um, but I think part of that is that this movie is a uh, kind of a 
at the time, modern adaptation of a story that lacked those themes. And part of translating it into kind of this occult horror setting is that um, you end up having to aim a lot of your scares and a lot of the thematic points at an audience. That audience is especially demographically who they were focused on, a kind of white, generally Christian audience, right? And so you have to include things like this kind of it's pre-satanic panic, right? But it's a lot of those same elements. Um, and the original short story, uh, The Mask of the Red Death, I find to be a pretty uh, short and I think pretty effective uh, kind of parable about the um, ineffectiveness of trying to escape your own death. Um, the short story is pretty much just you know this narrator telling kind of the story of a Prince Prospero, who's the only named character, who holds this kind of, or who kind of sequesters away uh, in his castle and invites all the local, uh, you know, magisters and dukes and whatever to come and spend time and basically just let everybody else rot. And, uh, and eventually the mask comes and kills everybody. And there's a few elements of that story that I thought were going to be translated over. There is a clock that chimes, uh, you know, the, the prince has music playing, like just nice classical music playing. And every hour on the hour, they will all stop and the clock will chime very disturbingly and hauntingly. And then they will go back to what they were doing. And I think that's a pretty clear uh, symbol of, you know, oh, like the years yeah. passing. Yeah, just like just a, a reminder of, oh, I am one year older. I'm getting closer to death. Right. And at the end of the play, the Red Death comes as, you know, personified as a figure kills everybody and that's the end of it right and so i think it's it's a little bit about or i think it's mostly about uh how everybody will die but it's also kind of about uh revenge coming on to these kind of upper class uh politically important people yeah. who are letting everybody else kind of rot outside i think all of that is kind of removed from this movie uh by the nature of prospero being a satanist right like you don't get uh it's not death is coming for everybody. It's death specifically is coming for these people because of uh, who Prospero is, their own attitudes, right? And people are saved because they uh, act uh, in defiance of Prince Prospero's sins, right? And that's why they're saved. Where the original Mask of the Red Death is, no, it's coming for you too. It's coming for everybody. It's coming for the poor people outside. It's coming for the rich people in. It is inevitable. Um, where this story kind of misses that, main thematic point. But again, I kind of like that it does that as a movie because I want to see Vincent Price chewing up the scenery. I want to see weird trippy dream sequences with Satan. Um, I like all that shit. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that That's a really funny point. It's, it's like, I, I keep trying to make this all work with what I'm saying. So I apologize if, if I'm going too far, but like in the first and second act of this movie, Vincent Price sort of our Prince Prospero is very purposefully circumventing the role of death, right? It's like he goes out into the village and he's like, it's not the red plague that's going to kill you. It's me, right? Like I'm burning down the village. I'm going to torture people. I'm shooting people with crossbows. Like, I think that if this movie misses the fact that the red death is coming for everybody, it's because Vincent Price's presence is so large in it, right? Like you kind of said, Aaron, but it like, it almost works because this is like, uh, um, like you said, a modernist adaptation of this and almost knows that you know the Mask of the Red Death story as a jumping off point and is more interested in playing with that maybe than in um, depicting it in a straight way. 
you mentioned Aaron the you, like what you want to see from this movie what's your like your expectations of it knowing that it's a um Vincent Price film uh, or rather excuse me Vincent Price vehicle uh by a known director producer in Hollywood by that time and just like all of the elements that add up to what you're actually watching in this movie being very and that's what I tried to get at with my like quick take in the intro was that I I still enjoyed for the most part watching this movie I wasn't incredibly bored because it is just very visually arresting. It was, I believe it was Nicholas Rogue, right? Who was the cinematographer uh, for this movie. And um, go ahead, Cody. Oh, I was just going to say, yes, you're correct. You know, he went on to do a lot of, a lot of great things. He was a cinematographer for this movie and walkabout, uh, which is maybe his most well-known movie that he shot. And then he went on to make movies like, well, I guess he directed Walkabout too, um, but he directed Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, The Witches, um, probably, you know, more notable perhaps as a director. But yeah, um, this had a, a real striking look to it, didn't it? It really did. And I haven't seen any of other any of his other films, Nicholas Rogue's other films. Well, maybe or Roger Corman's other films, but it makes me want to dive back in uh, because like the way that this movie is, uh, I think Nick was calling it swimmy enough to make him sick when he was watching it, but it, it caught me in some really interesting ways because it does like right at the dance macabre near the end, it starts to get really swimmy and really trippy, obviously during the, um, uh, hallucinate hallucinogens, uh, devil worshiping scene, um, that Juliana is part of earlier that Aaron was mentioning, like a lot of the visual presentation of this movie is I think why you should watch it. If I recommended it to somebody, it would be based on that uh, almost solely. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think the movie looks really good. I, I quite like it. I know that Corman specifically disliked the uh, the ball, the mask. Right. Uh, I think right he disliked those scenes quite a bit. Um, he, he said he had a fun. He kind of funnily said that he had a day to shoot it, which would be good with a good would be good with an American film crew, but he was filming it with a British production team and they were just too slow. Oh. And it was like British, British people too stupid to, to get that one done in one day, I guess. Um, but I like that. I, a lot of that comes from the, the source material, which does, uh, it goes into Prospero's, uh, kind of eclectic nature and how he's such a weird, interesting interior decorator. Right. And there's this, this, his castle has, all of these wings that have different colors. One is entirely yellow with yellow windows and the yellow light shines through one is green similarly. Um, and, and some of that is kind of, uh, you know, there's this weird kind of geometric or ge- geographic, I guess, uh, structure to the original short story that I think works really well in kind of this clockwork, uh, uh, way that, that kind of like the passing of time Ooh. kind of goes from one area of the castle to the next. I think this kind of ditches that to, to basically make a set from like uh, Elvira, right. Or like, yes, from like Adam's family. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it kind of works again. It loses this thematic stuff, but what you get is, um, these really, like I'm not even gonna say creepy because I wasn't ever creeped out by it, right? But I think like the dungeons in this movie are really cool. Yeah, it's like a piss take on classic horror and Poe a little bit, right? Yeah, in in ways that I think Poe, I have some weird thoughts about it, but I, I think that he, even if he didn't like directly dive into a lot of that kind of uh, even more gothic uh, stuff that would come after him. I think that he influenced it so strongly that you could do kind of associate it. Same thing with like fall of the house of usher, which is like, just like the dude just loved castles and creepy houses and shit. Um, And I think this movie does kind of take that in an interesting way. 
Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I think just uh, adding to the conversation of this movie's look uh, and imagery, it takes different steps at every turn to make sure that we as the viewers are watching every uh, every bit of this, every facet of it. Like feasibly, if you really wanted to, you could tell the story of Prospero with Prospero, Juliana, and Francesca, like if you again if you really wanted to keep it intimate that is a story you could tell with a very limited cast um but adding adding these other secondary and tertiary characters adding in um all of the uh folks joining the, these party sequences adds an element of like collaboration and choreography that elevates the spectacle and i at times in certain scenes turns it into a lit- literal spectacle you know scenes that could just be taking place with two or three people are scenes where hordes of people are watching the action take place in these extremely ornamental uh, sets that are, yeah, as Harry said, probably in you know some warehouse somewhere. And like, I'm, I'm all the more happy for it. Like, to, <laughs> to be honest, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I would go to a Prospero party, dude. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's a no brainer. Um, but, but yeah, the the fact that this movie went, uh, and I'll use the term earnest again. It was. Uh, not so earnest in telling the Prospero story, or at least just telling the Prospero story. Um, like there's, I, I'm not the person to talk about Gothic or I would have, I would like to see more to understand the context for, for these types of movies. If the Prospero-esque Vincent Price E character or wannabe Vincent Price is, you know, the patriarch of this movie and also like the shitheel that we're wanting to see topple from this mountain, someone who feels like they can evade death, but having a, like a crowd for that to elevate the, like the viewership to make us feel like we're at this party and we're in the horde of people watching, um, hop toad set some dude on fire. Like that is a better experience for me, to be honest. You love to see it. Um, so the thing that I feel like we're coming back around to is like, that's so, little of this movie actually feels essential. I mean, Aaron gets to it when he says uh, that there's, you know, so much added on to the original story. Uh, Nick gets to it when it's like, uh, when he says that Vincent Price is doing something like that nobody else can really match. Um, Now, I I think in my opinion, the whole point of the film, of the making of the film was to add a bunch of schlock and like Harry said, not be like a faithful adaptation of the thing. Uh, but I wanted to hand it back to Nick for as our resident camp appreciator, like does the fact that it's so extra as a movie, the fact that it's got so much built on so much, just cream cheese slathered all over this movie. Does that have value in your opinion? Or does it just like, can't wait to get through this part so we can get back to the story? No, I think camp in and of itself is a good enough reason to watch a movie. Uh, I think it enhances movies, depending, you know, if the camp is intentional or unintentional. Sometimes it works better if it's unintentional. Uh, Mommy Dearest, uh, campiest movie ever made, probably, and completely unintentional. Um, I, I, I like the camp aspect of this. That's what kept me engaged and it sounds like that's what kept most of us engaged. The visuals, the camera work, every that Vincent Price is acting. Um, I none of it hurt the story. None of it took away from anything. It. 
I, I do think it added to the experience. I don't think the movie would have been better had the camp not been there. Um, again, for me, it's solely an issue of two different styles of camp not meshing together well, which makes it... At some point, it begins to feel so intentionally campy that it feels uncampy, if that makes any hmm. sense. Yeah, I I don't know camp as a as a tool well enough to You're like, straight, a, I understand. Agree with or dispute that, but at the same time, that sounds about right, you know, like it is of two minds, clearly, right? Like it it, it has to have the um Edgar Allan Poe angle, that like dark gothic angle, and something that is very nineteen sixties, something that's very you know, fr- frankly, quite tasteless at times, but in a very John Waters way, right? Like Vincent Price and John Waters give me the exact same, like chill up my spine that I, that I really enjoy actually. <laughs> Whoa, that's interesting. I love that. Um, I would say I don't disagree with Nick except in the way that the effect works subjectively. I just think that those two intermarrying or clashing of two different kinds of camp works for me really well. and. I'm not prepared to discuss intentionality and I don't particularly care about the intentionality. Right. Um, it just like the, the fact that we have two different sort of dueling ideologies, like Jason said, and they're represented by people who look like they belong in two different movies and are acting like they belong in two different movies that there's something about that, that really works for me, especially when one of them is represented by Vincent price, who uh, is completely in his own league here. Uh, it just like, I really enjoyed that. I even enjoy the sort of tension that Nick is referring to, especially the way that we've been talking. Aaron brought this up. Cody brought this up um, about this movie as sort of like a weird modernist hypertext movie where it's just like it's throwing reference at references at the wall and kind of cheapening all of them in the process where it's like making this this cheesy, self-aware um, camp fest to like quickly reference themes and ideas like i even think that that it's making a mockery of seventh seal a little bit right like seventh seal at the time this movie was made was so famous that roger corman delayed this movie because he was afraid that he was going to be accused of ripping it off like that makes it really interesting the way that this movie is so clearly aping uh, Seventh Seal and sort of doing a piss take on it the way it's doing a piss take on so many other things. And it makes it really interesting that they played it after the Seventh Seal at the Trilon, right? Like you can feel John sort of winking at us about that. Um, and I think that that has a really interesting effect of sort of reframing the way that we're thinking about so many of these different elements. And that reframing was itself something that Poe did with a lot of his stories in a very different context. And so there's something sort of... um again, sardonically, dryly funny and clever to me about the fact that it's like, look, we're doing sort of something that we think Poe would have liked had he been alive to do it now. It's sort of spiritually or poetically similar, even though it's so different in terms of its execution and style. That that works for me really well with this movie. Um I guess. And I understand the, the um, dissenting opinions, but I just wanted to describe that, I guess. For sure. There's a really interesting dissonance at play here in this movie uh, that worked for me and understandably doesn't, doesn't quite work for everybody. 
Um, but not for a lack of ability to appreciate it. It's not like it's doing something you're not seeing. It's like, I mean, you, you either enjoy it or you don't. It's, it's all showing you the same thing. Right. I should also say one more thing, sorry, uh, which is that I just read this article in the week by uh, Jeva Lang or Lan, Lange, uh, and it's called You Don't Want to Be in a Movie with Robert Pattinson. And it really informed my reading of this movie, weirdly, because that that uh, article is making the case that Robert Pattinson often turns in performances that are purposefully ironic uh, especially in like Netflix specials, like the King and the devil all the time. And his hilarious, weird performances wind up making the comparatively earnest performances in those movies look a lot worse, uh, in some ways that are really funny and interesting. And that sort of, uh, was resonant to me with what Vincent Price was doing here in some funny ways. So maybe check that article out, I guess we can link it. Yeah. Send me the link and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I'll leave this little stage open for final thoughts before we head into our closing segments. All right. Unless Nick, Nick put his hand up. Nick, you put your hand up. Um, my final thought uh, is really irrelevant, but I have to get this off my chest. Uh, Vincent Price sounds exactly like Waluigi. And that's been our episode about the Mask of the Red Death. He looks like Waluigi, too. He, he definitely looks like, yeah, Waluigi. Kind of look like Waluigi. The vo- Vincent Price is Waluigi is my new theory. Confirmed. Uh, you heard it here first. Well, thank you very much for that final thought, Nick. Um, it's been good to have you. And as you've previously stated, your final episode of Try Love. So um, I hope you enjoyed that being that the, last thing, the last thing you got to say on this show, uh, because I know I did. Um, Harry, you want to help me welcome in our, our closing segment from, from our I do friend indeed. Cody? Um, I believe it is time It's a segment for... we like to call Cody's, Cody's Noties. I love how you each lead it in with your own. It's time for that segment we like to call. And then, oh man, I mean, that's going to be a challenge. We're along parallel, parallel Listen, trains. There are, no, there are no hosts here. There are only communists. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, that is food for thought. Um, but hello everyone. Uh, I'm Cody, the host of the Try Love, uh, podcast. As it's been discussed, uh, today through this, this, uh, fine episode, I would say, uh, if I'm not too bold, The Mask of the Red Death is a film adaptation anchored heavily by the presence and performance of the iconic, complicated, and at times condemnable Vincent Price. Um, we won't get into it now. If you look him up, he's held some pretty... Shitty views. Uh, he's held some pretty shitty views over the years. Um, but in, in any, so just a, a footnote for that. Uh, but to me, it, it seems his contributions to to film and horror, uh, the economy of his aura, as it were, is well recognized and pretty well documented among the spooky seeking masses, uh, which some of us are. I don't know. I know Harry doesn't like scary movies, but um, who knows? Maybe there's more Vincent Price in his future. Uh, that's not for me to decide, unless uh, John Moret. I sure hope so. the yeah, I hope so too. Um, but all that being said, what happens when we go a bit deeper into the numbers behind the man? I'm excited to present a new segment to the show that zeroes in on this man of horror titled The Price is Fright. Um, working title. We'll see how that goes. Holy um, shit. It, that is not a working title. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm safety netting myself. Uh, but basically what I've done uh, is I've dug into the nitty gritties of Vincent Price, his life, uh, his career, his filmography, paying close attention to some of the important numbers that came up along the way. And the, what I'll do, the real dollars and cents, you could say. Sure, you could say. 
definitely. Um, but what I'll do is bop around to each of you, and one by one, we'll lay the foundation upon which Vincent Leonard Price Jr. shall stand uh, or sit. We'll be him a Junior. Yeah. Oh, There's yeah, another baby. one. Vinny Junior. Little Vinny Junes. Um, if you're all cool with it, we can go in reverse alphabetical order by first name, uh, which I think we did last time. That'll set us up for an order of Nick, Jason, Harry, and then Aaron. So Nick, if you're ready, uh, you're up first. Okay, let's do it. Perfect. Um, so I'll, I'll ramp up to it just a little. Vincent Price had a notably extensive career with over 200 acting credits from the years of 1938 through 1993, which was the year in which he passed away. Of the films Price had a role in, how many of them had titles that included the word house? So how many Vincent Price movies contain the word house in the title? Just your best approximation. 49. Wow. That would that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, um, the, the, uh, the answer I have in front of me um, is eight. I wish it were 49 more than I've ever wished anything in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. I mean, can you blame me? Absolutely not. Highest? No, no, I could not blame you uh, for, yeah. Um, holy shit, man, 49. Uh, I would be happy to list these, but I'm also curious if any of you folks, maybe some of them came up on the episode. I'm, I'm, I blacked out during big portions of that episode, um, that conversation we had. But any of you have any uh, ones offhand, any Vincent Price flicks that you know of uh, that have the word house in them? House, I mean, house on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill, 1959. That that, is that movie of... terrified me as a child, actually. It, nice. it was legitimately scarring. Wow, he, I'll have to get that one. He did House of Usher, because that was another core movie. He did. Yeah, the yeah, year after. That's the one I was going to bring up, because Aaron brought it up. That's right. Um, yeah, for sure. Those two. Any others? Come on, we've got we got 25% of this right. Well, pff, 20, that's a fucking F, dude. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just go through chronological order. Uh, House of Seven Gables in 1940. Um, I assume this is the OG House of Wax uh, in 1953. I could be wrong. House on Haunted Hill in 59. House of Usher in 1960. And then we have House of 1000 Dolls in 1967. The, oh boy. Uh, way too many. Uh, a thousand too many. Uh, the Hilarious House of Frightenstein in 1971. Um, nice. maybe, maybe he jumped the shark by then. Who knows? Um, Madhouse in 1974. And finally, House of the Long Shadows in 1983. Um, not too many exciting titles there, I guess. Um, Frightenstein offers up a lot of questions. But um, add those to the letterboxed watch lists, gents. Um, so yeah, okay, good. We're, we're laying these bricks. Um, Next up, we have super producer Jason Daphnis. Welcome to the show. Um, for those who, who don't know, for any listeners who are new to the podcast, we call him the super producer for a number of reasons. Uh, he's super, and he's a producer for not just Trilove, but also That's for a up. little... Yeah, uh, look out for a, a little podcast y'all may have heard of called Crossfade, um, where uh, formerly called Mintrax, uh, but it's been rebranded. It is a, a show where Jason, Matt Helgeson, and some fabulous guests talk music and the ways in which... Uh, artists and sensibilities overlap with each other. Um, in that vein, the subject of this conversation, the subject being Vincent Price, dipped his toes. Uh, he did, in fact, dip his toes into the waters of other mediums and was even recognized by the Recording Academy along the way. Uh, Jason, I ask you, how many Grammy Awards was Vincent Price nominated for over the course of his career? And again, just your best approximation for the number of Grammys Vincent Price was nominated for. Seven. Man, I love that you all are going so hard. He was only nominated for two, but I wish he was nominated for seven. 
<laughs> oh man. Uh, he, he was nominated for two Grammys uh, in our hearts. He was nominated for seven or maybe five. You know what? What kind of music did he have? Was it all just spooky, ooky? <laughs> um, spooky, ooky. Yeah, spooky, ooky is what it was. Spoiler yeah. fright. So he was nominated for best spooky, ooky performance. No. Um, so that, I guess, you know, not exactly quote unquote. He lost music. to Nathan Lane, incidentally. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. That's man. Jason's noties. Um, but he was nominated uh, at the first ever Grammys in 1958 uh, for best performance on, uh, or be- I, I'll just say the actual thing, best performance, comma, documentary or spoken word. Um, so a spoken word album, Great American Speeches was the name of that, um, which sounds spooky ooky in itself. That sounds, that sounds like a, re- like a beautiful reduction of everything that I want all the content that I want from Vincent Price is just him reading words that I've probably heard before. Four score and seven years ago. Yes, literally. Yeah. Um, And uh, his second nomination came years later in 1973 at the 16th Grammys, uh, best spoken word recording for a little album called Witches, Ghosts, and Goblins. I know nothing about any of these albums uh, other than what we can kind of infer, but with his voice, I'm, I am flabbergasted that he didn't win seven or more Grammys uh, for being. Well, he was also good nominated, of course, for his "All I Want for Christmas Is You" rendition. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow, add that to the note. All I want for Christmas is boo. <laughs> I literally thought of that exact same joke. <laughs> yes, I was like, "Is he going to say it?" Uh, yes, very good. Beautiful. Um, but yeah, he didn't win. He, like we said, he was only nominated. Uh, but you live and you learn. Uh, or I guess if you're the recording enemy, you probably still don't learn. Uh, but whatever. In just, any case, yeah, go just ahead. Just as an aside, um, he, Vincent Price is on Spotify. And he does, in fact, have a This Is Vincent Price Spotify playlist official. So Let's fucking get on go. that. Man. Wow. Uh, bring that to Crossfade, please. Um, <laughs> we are, uh, we're moving on now, this time, to Harry. Now... If there's one thing I know Harry likes, it's good art. Certainly, that includes art that is culturally, historically, and or aesthetically significant. Uh, funnily enough, the National Film Registry brought to us by the Library of Congress also digs those same funky cinematic vibes. Who'd have thunk? So I ask Harry, with his eye for the arts, how many works has Vincent Price appeared in that have been selected for the National Film Registry? Your best approximation. Wow, I'm an art guy. Uh, should I say a really high number? More like a fart guy. Yeah, sh- uh, whatever you'd like. Uh, I'm going to say um, 10. Nice even number. Uh, I, you're far and away the closest that anybody has gotten so far. He's actually appeared in seven National Film Registry works. Uh, so we're getting there. Six of them were were straight up movies. I'll just list these. Um, Laura, which came out in 1944. Uh, and then 1945's Lever to Heaven. Uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 1948. That is very significant, uh, I suppose. Uh, House of Wax again in 1953. The Ten Commandments in 1956. And then House of Usher in 1960. And then he also appeared in uh, a music video that is in the registry, um, which is Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1983. He was the narrator, I guess. I didn't know that. I haven't. Oh, damn. I didn't yeah. know that either. Yeah, I yeah, that's a Man, blind spot for me. But how would you like seven movies you were in to be considered historically worth preserving? That's wild. How would I like to be in seven movies? Wow. Someday, would, Cody. Uh, yeah, whatever. I will not hold my breath. Um, but uh, so yeah, uh, Vincent Price is significant. It, it turns out, um, and this brings us to Aaron. Now, 
uh, I've known I'm, I'm I'm vamping for these. Uh, now I, I've I've known Aaron Grossman for uh, we're coming up on almost a decade now, pretty soon here, which is pretty wild. I think. Um, never thought I'd make it this far. Uh, one thing I learned long ago and came to appreciate about Aaron is that he generally reliable has uh, reliably has a finger on the pulse of critical reception for films and music and anything else that critics gravitate toward. And I'd like to play off that for for this question. I've pulled together the overall tomato meter. I had trouble saying this in my head, even <laughs> tomato meter score. Oh, fucking hell. These made up words uh, for Vincent Price's filmography. Um, as far as I can tell, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't provide this figure enter, uh, anywhere automatically like Metacritic does on a per actor basis, which is kind of fucked up. Um, I might be wrong. I didn't take into account number of reviews for these movies or anything. I just took the straight up average of the tomato meter scores for the movies in Vincent Price's filmography. So taking into consideration that not every Vincent Price movie has that information available, a good number of them do, um, I would like to hear from Aaron what uh, what your guess is for Vincent Price's collective tomato score, uh, again, for what is ultimately not complete data. By collective, you mean average. Yeah, yep, yeah, the average. So the average of uh, the Vincent Price movies, the average of those tomato meter scores. You, do, you, do you know that you could host Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? I believe you could. You could easily get an NPR show. Arguably better than the current hosts do. <laughs> I would much prefer to hear you on um, Krista Tippett on Speaking of Faith. You should do Speaking uh, of Faith. My, my cheeks are currently a shade of tomato color right now. That is uh, way too generous. Um, but but um, I am going... Okay, here's the thing. Uh, I think that Vincent Price definitely had some stinkers, a lot of the B-movie camp. I think a lot of those worse, cheesier ones might not have tomato meters, though, so maybe that helps my average. And he was in a few films. Like, I'm sure The Ten Commandments has 100% on there. Uh, <laughs> oh, undoubtedly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, f- uh, 56%. I love how you mapped out your logic, and I think ultimately your head was in the right place. This was maybe the the one question where you could have gone extreme and uh, and gotten away Wait, with it. Really? For the 42 films that we have tomato entries for, Vincent Price's collective tomato meter score is 73.86, or for okay. rounding to the nearest hole, 74. Uh, which your, your point about only the good ones, like the good yeah, entries having tomato point. scores, is like spot on, uh, for sure. Do you know uh, any other averages for, like, what is a good actor average? You know oh, what I mean? I, oh, yeah, I would have no idea. It's also uh, like... I, I hate to be that guy about it, but like you kind of grade on a curve with older movies, right? Like I feel like there are a ton of older movies that are just fine that have like 99% on Rotten sure. Tomatoes. Yeah, no, you're totally right. So certainly skewed. Um, an interesting exercise in itself for uh, analyzing that data. Um, love those numbers. Um, and this brings us to our final price prompt, uh, if you will. And this one's for everybody. So a one of, exactly. Uh, Eric, can we get a clean cut of that? A clean read? <clears throat> I said it is a PP. The PP. Uh for for this last uh PP, one of Vincent Price's last on-screen performances was as the inventor in Edward Scissorhands. Uh and that movie's maintained uh, a pretty devoted following over the years. I can't remember the last time I saw it in full uh start to finish. I actually don't know if I ever have. Um but uh I've I'm Wondering for the sake of this exercise how it fared at the time. Um, I guess I already know how it fared at the time, but that's what you're here to find out. Uh, Today we're interested in its worldwide gross. So one at a time, I'm going to ask 
each of you to give your estimate for how much Edward Scissorhands made during its initial worldwide theatrical run. And we're not adjusting for inflation or anything, just going by the the rates at the time. And whoever's closest to the actual total will win this last round, you know, bragging rights and all that. And we'll go through uh, reverse alphabetical order again. So starting with you, Nick, when you're ready, um, go ahead and submit your guest for total uh, worldwide theatrical gross for Edward Scissorhands time in theater. I ask really quick, what year yeah. was that again? Uh, 1990. Uh, yes. 1990 is when it was released. Oh, Christ. Oh boy. Uh, several things to take into account. Johnny Depp's popularity, but also how niche this movie was. I'm gonna say 200 million. 200 million. I'm just making note of that here in the background. Perfect. So we got 200 million. Uh, next up is Jason. I'm gonna say 101 million dollars. $101 million, Bob. Perfect. Uh, next up is Harry. Uh, wow. I have absolutely... I, every time we do one of these, I realize I have no idea how box offices yeah, work. Yeah, same here. Um, it's, it's just a complete crapshoot. I'm just raising our floor, you know? I'm going to say $32 million. Perfect. $32 mil. And last up, we have Arby, please. Um, gotta, I'm... Uh, I'm gonna split. I'm gonna go. Well, are we doing? I don't want to ask. If we're doing price, prices right rules. Just so say a goddamn. Uh, yeah, no, say a fucking goddamn 150 number. Hundred fifty. Hundred and fifty million. Thank you for your guesses, y'all. Um, I struggle with mental math, so I'm just gonna do some quick tabulations in the background here. Mm. Doom, 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 doom. That's a different game show. Uh, forgive me. Okay, perfect. So. We have uh, we have our, our winner of the round. Uh, the correct answer. Edward Scissorhands brought in $86,024,005 during its worldwide theatrical run, um, which I believe uh, gives us Jason as the winner. Woo! Uh, nice. For what it's worth, about $56 million of that was from domestic returns, and its budget was around $20 million, so it turned a nice profit. Um, yeah. Not a, not a, not a smash runaway though, right? Like no, there's a reason it's called I think, the cult classic. I think for today. its genre and for the time, that's pretty. It that, was a surprise, that, I'm sure. Yeah, it must have been a huge, much bigger success than anybody expected. Right? Was, was Burton able to make that because of the success? Well, no, he Batman was the, earlier, right? Oh yeah, Batman was not. Uh, Batman was eighty nine. Batman so was eighty nine. Yeah, maybe it was one for you, one for me, kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, that was. I, I remember hearing. One. I remember hearing like a weirdly large amount about Edward Scissor's hands, even as a kid. I remember my mom rented it and I just watched it and I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, and I turned it off. Like Yeah, a lot of people still think it's like the Tim Burton movie, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, that that three year run, because you have Beetlejuice in eighty eight, Batman in eighty nine, and then Edward Scissorhands in nineteen ninety. Like you could argue those are the movies he's best known for, that trifecta, right? He would have been a really hot commodity by then. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, How that's, dare you uh, put disrespect on Paranorman's <laughs> name like this, though? Look, I said arguably. Um, we can get Corpse Bride in the mix. Uh, Big Fish. Oh, man, I forgot he was on Big Fish. Man, what a fucking weird Big movie. Eyes. Big Eyes. Uh, Mars Attacks. I haven't big seen that one. Big Fish with Big Eyes. Ooh, there you go. Attacks uh, Mars. Maybe we'll have uh, the Burton is is right at some point down the road. Uh, but that, that is the, the price is fright. We've, you know, learned a little bit. Uh, we, we talked numbers a little bit, something to show. 
does not do very often. And as you've as you've seen, not for, you know for for good reason. Um, I was going to say you, you've you've experienced the rule and the exception both in one ten minute segment. Right. I, I mean, we're, we're entering spooky month. God will get a, a little horrific. I am horrified. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining. And thank you, listeners, for uh, being there for our episode about the Mask of the Red Death. It is playing at the Trilon this coming weekend, and you can get your tickets at trilon.org if you happen to go to the theater to watch the movie in person. I know it's tempting. Uh, make sure to wear a mask. You may not bring anything into the theater that would force you to remove your mask to use it, including water bottles and food and all that good stuff. Wear your mask in general when you're in public, and especially do it if you're going to be in a closed space. Uh, like at the Trilon. Um, you can also purchase a ticket and then rent it at home. Or uh, yeah, I'll advocate piracy. You can pirate it. Um, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, but I shouldn't, dang, I should not let us go without thanking once again our very special guest, Nick Ransbottom, for joining. Uh, thank you so much for uh, making our stop your final podcast stop ever. Uh, I appreciate that it's you've you've chosen our outlet for your uh, creative endeavors. and. Um, and I appreciate your time. Uh, you deserve, we'll have to put together some kind of lifetime achievement or something, because as you promised earlier, uh, this is your last episode of this podcast. Um, and I assume that's your last pod- episode of any podcast ever. So thank you, Nick, for being with us one last time. Yeah, this was, um, that's great. I liked the part where you uh, mocked me uh, viciously and put me on the spot to speak terrible French. Um Great way to go. Would you, out. would you like to do that for us one more time, Nick? I wouldn't, Harry. For your French Canadian. Harry, would you like to be punched by a gay man in Montreal? <laughs> Gotta have pretty long, long arms. Buddy. Here's, <laughs> I here's, can... here's I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set the record straight. It's we're an hour and seventeen minutes in. I received a text message from Nick Ransbottom, uh, emeritus. No. <laughs> last, last night, I'm going to mute you. Last night at 6.58 p.m., just before I started watching the film, if no one speaks French, let me know, and I'll help whomstever is doing the plot summary if they mention the French author that this story takes a subplot from. I did not respond to that message, but I did give you the platform this time. A precipitous Nick, fall, much like Vincent Price's in the movie. No one, is, uh, no one brought it up. I specifically said if anyone mentions it. I mentioned it. And this is the Thank loophole. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for being I, on. Um, can't wait to have you on again. Uh, we'll be doing more horror-themed episodes as the Trilon keeps playing them. And, <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll find ways to work you in. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Where can people find you, Nick? And where where can they look for your movie stuff too? Uh, I am at the Atsio Kenway on Twitter, and I believe. At the Ezio Kenway on Letterboxd, you? You are incorrect. You are just at Ezio Kenway. You just managed, you managed to get Kenway. it without the without the qualifier, just the proper I name. have to work my branding. God damn it. You really do. Uh, and once again, I am Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Follow us on, tri- on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Follow the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Follow all of those things. Uh, I've been Cody Narvasatan. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry or at underscore Lord of Flies, as it soon will be. Uh, make sure that you wear a mask because COVID-19 kills Satanists, too. Uh, I'm Aaron. Uh, I archived my uh, notes on this movie about 30 seconds ago that had the, the nickname that I used, so I don't remember it. But you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Thank you for listening to Try Love. 
Go Now with Satan, the Lord of Flies, the Fallen Angel, the Devil.